And uh, it's good to see you. My name is Luke. There's some of you I haven't met yet today. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I'm looking forward to hanging out with you today. We're, we're going through the book of Galatians, so if you have a phone or a Bible, go ahead and turn to Galatians 2. That's where we pick it up today. I'm enjoying this time. This, this is a hard text today, and I'm going to do the best I can. Um, but as I was putting it together, it reminded me that today, right when I'm finished, I get on a plane for Dallas, and I'm going to be spending some time there to be with my dad. Um, some of you know this already, and you've been praying for him, and I appreciate it, but weeks ago, my dad was diagnosed with stage three kidney cancer. He's having one of them removed with a bunch of other stuff. Um, it's kind of a complicated surgery, so I'm going to go there and spend time with him and my mom. Um, I've been going back and forth to Texas already because we've been seeing doctors and surgeons. They've been taking all kinds of scans and pictures and x-rays and MRIs and CAT scans and things I've never even heard of. Um, And so they've been putting them up on this big TV up on the wall and we've been kind of seeing just white globs connected to white globs. I don't really know what any of that means, but it makes total sense to them. And they're kind of leading us through what looks good and what looks bad. Again, it all looks the same to me, Um, but it shows me how how much, how far science has come in the last 50, 60 years. I mean, you could really get a peek under the hood now, can't you? I mean, you could really see how far away we are from being ideal. I mean, when you look at these scans, I'm looking at x-rays and MRIs, and I see how far he is from perfect. You can see everything, imbalances, wrinkles, dysfunction, broken things. You know, I think in some cases it even shows us how terminal we are. It shows how far away we are from being right. And I look at these pictures of my dad, and I realize that these pictures demand an answer. They demand a surgery. They demand a remedy. You know, as we talk today in this passage in Galatians 2, there there really are two players involved. There are two cultures, realistically. We have the Jews and we have the Gentiles. And some of you, you're not used to maybe hearing the word Gentile. You've always kind of wondered what that is. Very quickly, a Gentile is a not Jew. (laughs) It's someone that is not a Jew. Gentile is someone who, they can eat whatever they want. They don't have holy days, right? Circumcision isn't something that they really talk about all that much. They're far from the Jewish culture. They're not a Jewish culture. Now, the Jews had laws. In fact, get this. The Jewish culture had over 600 laws. Over 600. That seems like a lot, doesn't it? I mean, I can't even follow 60. I I can't even get my tags renewed on time. I just did that last week, 10 months after they were supposed to be renewed. I can't even follow that rule. I can't even follow my own rules. Any of y'all do that? Set up a rule, a little regulation, and you can't even follow it? Kids, we're not going to use that word in this household anymore from this point on. Why, Dad, is it a bad word? No, I just don't like it. And from now on, we're not using it. And 24 hours later, Dad, I thought we weren't using that word. Shh. Starting now, we're not using that word anymore. They had over 600 rules and statutes and regulations and laws. And these were beautiful things that God set up. They were His idea. He established them as his terms of relationship with the nation Israel. That, that was how he was going to interact. It wasn't a horrible thing. It was a beautiful thing. It was a holy thing. And one role that, 
the, this law, these laws, regulations, and statutes, one of the roles, the primary role that it would fill was to show them how far they were from ideal. It was to show them how far they were from being right. You look at those 600 laws and regulations and statutes, you figure out real quickly how broken you are. It demands an answer, doesn't it? Like an MRI or an, or an x-ray, it demands a remedy because it's just so easy to break them. God and His grace and His graciousness as a gift to His nation, He gives them a sacrificial system. Why does He do that? Because they're going to break the laws. He gave them 600 laws, they're just going to keep breaking them. So what does He do? He gives them a sacrifice system. Something that they can do to cover their shame, cover their guilt, cover their sin, right? Now, when I was a young Christian, I struggled with the sacrificial system. I don't know if you struggle with this, but there seems to be a lot of blood. (laughs) I mean, there's just goats and oxen and blood being sprinkled everywhere. It just seems a little weird and odd to me, and I never understood it. But the reason that's even in the Bible, folks, is because it points to Jesus Christ. All it is is an arrow of one day there would come a final priest offering himself as a final offering who is perfect and who is blameless and he would empty himself out on the cross to cover our shame and our guilt and our sin. He is the better offering. He is the better priest. That's why that's in the Bible, right? You know, before I, before Jesus found me and he found me misbehaving, before Jesus found me with his grace, I would look at these laws, these regulations, and these statutes, and Exodus, and other books, and even the ones that Jesus would say. And I would think, who can do these? I mean, who really can do these? I, I can't do it. I mean, I, I could follow these rules maybe for a little bit. I could follow them maybe for a few hours, right? And on the outside, if you were to watch me, it might actually look like I'm pulling it off. But inside... Man, I mean, I'm a thief inside. I'm a liar. I'm a rebel. I'm a pervert. I'm a hater. I'm dysfunctional. I'm broken. On the outside, I can pull it off. Maybe. Maybe even longer than a few hours if no one else is in the room. I'd look at this and it would show me that, I mean, the core of my being, the core of my being is so trashed and so scandalous, I can't even follow a small portion of the laws. I mean, before I was a Christian, before grace found me and revolutionized me, I would look at the wall, I look at what he says in Exodus and the laws, regulation and the statutes, and I would hate it. I would hate it because it would show me how broken I was. It would be a burden to me. It would be heavy to me. Before Jesus... Before I became a Christian, I'll tell you, to be honest with you, even while I'm a Christian, probably last week, probably today, I would actually look for my own little versions of sacrifices and offerings that I could give to God in order to erase my own sin, in order to erase my own shame, in order to erase my own guilt. I would offer stuff up, and especially when I sin badly or repeatedly, then I would put it in the fifth gear, and I would sacrifice really hard. I mean, I would, I would obey, I would make pledges and vows, I would get real radical because I wanted God to perform for me. Hey God, if I perform for you, will you perform for me? 
I mean, if I behave really hard, if I obey really extra, extra good, would you give me favor? Would you give me grace? Would you keep me from being sick? Would you like me more? Would you not hate me? Would you love me more? If I perform, will you perform? If I do, will you do? And we do this all the time. I mean, you've probably caught yourself doing it. All right, God, I'm going to quit cussing. In fact, I'm only going to say good things for the rest of my life, and I'm never going to lie again. Okay, from here on, I'm not lying anymore. And I'm going to start volunteering, God. I'm going to start showing up to things early, and I'm going to start staying late. And I'm going to start giving. And I mean like twice as much as everybody else, because I mean it. Because, I'm, I'm, because I know that sin is ugly, God, and I want it to go away. And I want you to like me like I, like, like I think you could like me, so I'm going to do extra. And I'm going to fast, too. And not one of those sissy fasts where you could drink juice, but like straight up Navy SEAL fast, where it's just water, you know? In fact, I might not even do water just to show you how much I really... And then I'm going to get six accountability partners to keep me accountable to not drinking water because I really mean it. And if I perform enough, God, will you perform for me? Now, there's nothing wrong with watching what comes out of your mouth. Giving to the church is perfectly fine. Nothing wrong with tithing. Nothing wrong with fasting. Fasting is fantastic. There's nothing wrong with showing up early and staying late. Nothing wrong with any of that. But if I'm doing that in order to manipulate God, I'm going to do so that you do. If I perform, will you outperform me? Because I feel real bad about my sin. If I do this, will you do? Then we have mishandled the law. We're actually mishandling the gospel as well. You know, I think maybe in the first several months of my Christian walk, I was going through a season you know, whenever you first become a Christian, and some of you know this because you are Christians, you start to see your sin like you've never seen it before. Stuff that I didn't even know was a sin is a sin. And it really starts to bug you and itch. And you can't, it feels like you're really struggling to wash it off. And I was going through that period where I was trying to get rid of some sin that I just could not get any victory over. So I thought, you know what I'm going to do? You know what the problem is? I've got too much secular music. <laughs> and when I mean music that I did not buy at a Christian bookstore, right? Whatever that means. So I said, I'm getting rid of it all. So I found one of those, it's like a pawn shop for music kind of places. They buy your old CDs, your old vinyl. You get like 75 cents a CD. It's a total rip, you know. And I went in, and to let you know how many CDs I sold, I got out of there with $300. Everything, box sets, collector's editions, autograph stuff. I mean, I got rid of it all because I was serious for God. I really wanted him to move. And I was particularly fond of rap at the time. And I come from a school of rap that is much different today. When Will Smith used to be Fresh Prince, before he was Fresh Prince, when he was actually a rapper, some of you are like, he was a rapper? <laughs> he wasn't bad. He wasn't bad. LL Cool J, Run DMC, when they first started. I mean, I went to junior high with Adidas on with no shoelaces in them, right? Just like Run did. Because I was serious and I wanted street cred, you know? The shoes would always fall off. But I looked cool. That was me. And I had these albums that I loved and I cherished. And I just, I would wear stereo systems out, playing them over and over and over again. And I'm walking out of this place with 300 bones, just burning a hole in my pocket. And I thought, I got to get somewhere. So I go to a Christian bookstore the first time I ever went to one, right? Which that's a totally different sermon right there. But I'm in the Christian bookstore and I'm walking up and down the singular aisle they have with music, looking for anything that remotely speaks to my generation. Anything. Just wondering, what have I done? And the young man, he's my age, comes up and he says, you know what? What can I do? Or you look like you're looking for some music. I am. Well, what are you used to listening to? 
And I'm thinking, okay. So I start telling him, and he's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, like he's heard of any of these bands. And he goes, I know exactly what you need. And he doesn't even turn his body his head. He just reaches back on the end cap display and hands me a CD. This is what you need. Stephen Curtis Chapman. <laughs> now listen, if you love Stephen Curtis Chapman, man, I do too. He loves Jesus. And if you like that music, that's great, but he can't rap, right? And so I said, are you sure, man? He goes, I'm positive. This is who you need. I said, but I don't mean to be racist, but he's white, you know? And not like Eminem white. I mean, he's got like a part in his hair and a guitar on his lap. He's like cursive writing on the CD. There's no cursive writing on any of the CDs I just traded in. That was a sad day for me. I mean, it was, it was radically tough for me. There was no rap on the Christian horizon at the time. So I'm driving home thinking, Jesus, I'll do it for you. I'll do it for you, Jesus. Will you do for me? Now, is there anything wrong with getting rid of music that's talking about getting with the honeys at the club all the time? There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with getting rid of music that worships the devil, and I did have it, and I did sell it. There's nothing wrong with, with watching what you pay attention to. There's nothing wrong with enjoying music that glorifies God, whether it's secular or not. There's nothing wrong with that. But I wasn't doing it because I delighted and satisfied in God. I was doing it because I wanted God to do for me. And there is a radical difference. A very, very radical difference. Before getting God's grace, before the gospel changed me from the inside out, I would pay close attention, maybe some of you are like this, to how others behaved. And that's how I would build a value of myself. You pray how much? Mm, Man, I need to pray that much. Right? You witness to how many people? Woo! I think I could do that. I think I, you fit how many people in your living room for missional community? <laughs> we got to get to work. We got work to do. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with spurring each other on to works. So there's nothing wrong with that. But I was trying to one-up them and compete with them because I wanted my value in God's eyes to swell. I hope you guys see the difference in this. There's a problem. There's an inherent problem in that. And the problem is, is when you do do well... And when you are behaving, you begin to look down on the people who don't. Child molesters are dirty, dirty, dirty people. People who are still living to secular music are dirty, dirty, dirty people. You know, half-baked Christians start looking down on people. And the extra problem is, is whenever you begin to do well, right? Whenever you begin to do well, you start judging everybody. Only your way is the right way. Everyone else is fouled. And whenever you do wrong and you misbehave, you disappear. Disappear. Vanish. Nothing like this. No missional community. No appearances before God's word. No appearances in worship. You don't respond to community. You don't answer emails. You don't answer phone calls. You don't answer texts. You just vanish. And what you do when you do that, friends, is you're punishing yourself subconsciously you're punishing, you're lashing your own back, hoping that God sees it and has sympathy on you and lets you back in His presence. That's what happens when we vanish from community whenever we are caught misbehaving. And that's a cruddy place to live, isn't it? This whole performance thing, that's a heavy life. Always trying to convince yourself that the gospel is good when deep inside you don't feel like it's good. Always telling yourself and other people that Jesus is sweet, God is big, Jesus was sufficient, God is satisfied, but in the whole time of your heart you really don't even believe it. You start to look like that knife salesman. 
going door to door, selling people knives. They cut through cans and then tomatoes. This is a great knife, but in your own heart, you're not buying it. You're not convinced. You're just wore out. You're just tired. Why does everyone like this thing called Christianity when it is just wearing me out? All these rules. Moses' rules. Jesus ramps up the rules. I think my church even has rules. Rules, rules, rules. Regulations, statutes. And I can't follow any of them. And I'm just running out of stuff to sacrifice. And I'm just tired. And I'm wore out. What do we do with obeying the law? What do we do with obeying commandments of God? What do we do with the Old Testament law? I mean, they're holy. They were God's idea. They're a very beautiful thing. But what is their role in our lives today in Christianity? I mean, how are we supposed to engage them? Does it, does it actually even still impress God? Does it give us access to God when we can check a lot of them off on our list? That's what I would like to look at today. That was the longest intro I've ever done, but we're halfway through, if that makes any sense. Okay? So look at Galatians 2, and we're going to jump in at verse 11. Tricky passage. It's on the screen if you don't have anything to read, and we do have free Bibles on the table, so you can grab one of those on the way out. Paul starts off with this. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Cephas is Peter here, by the way. Same, same guy. And he came to Antioch. Peter is usually in Jerusalem. Antioch is Paul's church. That's his home church. So Peter is now in his backyard. And Paul, a young up-and-comer, just over a dozen years in the Lord himself, stands up to Peter, which was an awkward situation. Peter, at the time, being the largest figure in the Christian world. There was no one bigger. I mean, that was awkward. It was tough. It was tense in the room. Verse 12, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The circumcision party and the men who came from James, those are the same dudes. Whenever it says that the men came from James, it doesn't mean that James endorsed them. It just means that they came from the church that James was the pastor of in Jerusalem. That's all that it means. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? See what's going on right here is Paul is opposing him to his face, a seasoned veteran. And he's saying, hey, Peter, if you're living like a lawbreaker, but you're doing it to the glory of God, then how are you looking down on these other lawbreakers doing the same thing you're doing and calling it a sin? I mean, Peter, you were just eating pork with them. You're just munching on some bacon with them. Everything was fine. These guys walk in the room and you push away from the table. You're a hypocrite. Flip-flopper. That's what's going on right now. I've heard pastors try to smooth this over, make it look like it ain't doing this. It is doing that. That is happening. He's not pulling him aside and dealing with it privately. It's in front of everybody because of the weight of the moment. This is a heavy, heavy moment. Okay? Peter was essentially dividing the church between Christians who obey and Christians who don't. 
He was dividing the church. And whenever he pushed away from the pork eaters, whenever he retreated away from them, those who were uncircumcised, he was basically saying that it is a sin to eat certain foods. And if it's not a sin, guys, then God might approve of it, but not as much as he approves of not eating it. I mean, here we are. We're getting more favor than you're getting because we're a different party altogether because we don't touch stuff like that. How do you think that made those Gentiles feel? Like a second-class Christian? I mean, saved but barely saved? How do you think that made Paul feel, being their pastor? That would, I would flip out if something like that happened to you. Now you can see why he ramps it up a little bit. These are people that he might have led to the Lord. The fact that should not be forgotten in all of this is that this happened around a food situation. This is around a table. This is not a small detail. Actions around a table in the ancient Mediterranean were as profound and as emphatically informative for people as sermons preached from a pulpit. Who you ate with and what you ate were a really really big deal. Now, we, we miss that a little bit today. We kind of don't understand that because the societal value of the table has morphed from what it used to be, right? We don't really pay attention to who we eat with and that being a statement of any kind. I mean, we have TVs that we huddle around when we eat and we blast through a drive through We don't really pay attention to the value of what a table can translate because in our culture, it just doesn't translate that much, right? It's not a place where enemies come and settle differences, It's not a place where reconciliation happens, where unequals become equals. We don't see that today at the table. I mean, for us, we look for value, right? Speed, it's got to be tasty, right? So we just cook right on through a drive-thru at Petro's Chili and Chips, pay less than five bucks, we munch on that while we drive, and that is how we value food largely today. For us, it is not as important because we are not a culinary culture even though we have the food network. What happens around a table doesn't have the value that it did back then. You've got to know that when you read passages like this. This is more than just about food, right? I mean, think about Jesus. Jesus was berated constantly for eating with sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors. When Jesus would sit down with them, he's basically making the emphatic statement that God is here to reconcile enemies. He's dining with dirty people. He's welcoming you to his family. That's why it was such a big deal. I mean, why else would they care who he eats with? He was making a statement. I mean, we, we all remember from growing up the story of Moses leading the people out into the wilderness, teaching them the old covenant, and manna would come, and they would eat the manna. That's more than about food. Jesus is a better Moses, right, who leads a better nation into a better wilderness, where another kind of food is multiplied before them as he teaches not an old covenant, but a new covenant. The reason that's in the Bible, friends, is it's pointing to Jesus. Again, it's more than just about food. Later on, Jesus would sit down with his... Uh, uh, his, his disciples, his closest ones, and he'd say, listen, fellas, this is the last time I take communion with you. This is it. I'm about to be murdered. The next time we have communion, it will be on the other side of the gates of life. It'll be a banquet. In fact, I'm going to go there and prepare a place for you, and it's going to be beautiful, and it's going to be grandiose, but that'll be the next time it happens. That's more than just about food. He is, Christ is our bread of life the Bible calls him, and he has wrecked himself on the cross, emptied himself at the cross, 
as our communion. He is our communion, and that is more than just about food. For God, a meal would be a symbol of reconciliation. It would be a symbol of celebration for us. What has happened and what is coming. So I read this, and I've wondered, especially in the past, how can this circumcision party have been so wrong? I mean, they're Jews. They know this stuff better than I do. How could they have missed this? I mean, what kind of argument could they have possibly had coming in? How could they have goofed this up so much? The truth is, is I think we understand the argument that they would have said. I think many of us have used the argument, and I think all of us have heard the argument. Think about it. Well, Luke, we still need all of the statutes and regulations to access God. They're still the answer. They're still the remedy. They need to be. I mean, Luke, think about it. The law is holy, which is true. The law is perfect. The law is God-breathed. God never intended for it to disappear, which is true. See, there's truth mixed into this. But Luke, if you just preach a gospel where there is no performance, where there is no work to merit grace, if you just preach that kind of a gospel, then look, people are going to abuse it and they're going to use it to sin like they want. If you just preach the gospel like it just says there and you strip the law out of it, the people are just going to do whatever they want. They're going to live a lawless life and be reprobate. And the thing is, is they're right. They're right. That's true. If we preach the gospel that the Bible lays out, and we do it every week, every month, we do it year after year, people will abuse it, they'll kick on it, they'll spit it, they'll they'll do whatever they need to do to live the life they want to live. That is true. But what it does show is that they never understood it. It shows that they never understood it because the gospel never leads us to a lawless life. It can't. The gospel truly understood and grace truly internalized never leads us towards licentiousness. So when it comes to Jesus, on one hand, and the Old Testament law on the other, what do we do? What do we do? We have two main errors that we see. All of us fit in both errors, by the way. So this will be easy for you. If you're trying to find yourself in an error, you're in both with me. Welcome. We are legalists when it comes to the Old Testament law, regulation, statutes, and we are licentious. We're both. Legalism basically says this, that the law regulation, performance, statutes has preeminent value. It's elevated by Jesus. It's put up there. And we must follow every little thing to the exact detail in order to impress God and have access to God. And so what they've done is they've made grace not a gift, but something you earn, something you clock in to get, right? Some of you land in this camp feeling really good about yourself this week, right? Because you didn't look at porn or you didn't blow up on the kids, and you actually pulled it off this week and did pretty good, you're feeling really good. It's easy to worship, isn't it? Jesus! You know, you're all excited because you feel clean inside. You feel like you almost deserve to be here. You deserve it. But some of you are feeling really condemned too, aren't you? Because you did look at junk online, and you did blow up on the kids, and you don't feel like you have the right to raise your hand. You don't feel like you deserve it. The punchline is, is, We never can deserve it. We never will deserve it. We never did deserve it. But Jesus, who only, he's the only one who ever deserved it, lived perfectly, died, lived again, and gave his righteousness to us. So that your confidence with God and before God is not dictated by how you perform today, this week, this year, your whole life. 
The other side is licentiousness, where the law has no purpose today. Jesus replaced it, Luke. He discounted it. He thought it was not helpful, so whatever. It's all about grace. We could live like we want. Now, the problem there, right, is that grace is not understood. Grace just is totally missed. Some of you land in this camp. But how did Jesus handle it? We could take a lesson there. How did Jesus handle the Old Testament law? How did he talk about obedience to it? And I will tell you, when he came, when he lived, and when he died, and he lived again, he fulfilled it. He fulfilled it. He didn't elevate it. He didn't throw it away. He fulfilled it. And when he did that, it forever altered its primary role for the Christian life. This is highly misunderstood, and it's highly controversial. Okay? If you want to text me a question, that's fine. But it forever altered and changed the primary role for the law in the Christian's life. It's no longer the law. It's no longer for his, for his people this condemning terminal sentence. It's no longer this oppressive weight just yoked around our shoulders. No longer for us as Christians is the law a mediator between us and God. No longer do we gain access to God through good obedience and performance of the law. Right? And not just laws in the Old Testament, by the way, and regulations, but the ones we invent and manufacture. No longer. You know, but the circumcision party, and we're in it, by the way. We're in that party. If you're trying to find yourself in that passage, you're there. You're part of the circumcision. We're not Paul standing up triumphantly, calling it out. We're the dudes that walked in and spoiled everything. And we're also the coward that pushed away from the table. Right? The circumcision party. There are some today, and that's even us, that want the law to remain the same. We want to perform. We want to behave. We want to earn. Because then salvation is under our control, and we're the throttle, and it glorifies us. Oh, I can be good before God. Just watch. Just watch. I can perform. I can outperform everybody, and I can really be valuable before God because I'm a pretty cool person, and I'm in control. Let's look at Matthew 5, 17. It will be up on the screen unless you're really fast. You could turn there in your Bible. Matthew 5, 17, it says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, Jesus said. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you just read it there, it it looks like God is keeping the law the same and it's not changing anything for the believer, does it? Looks like he's elevating it. But then it says this in verse 20. For I tell you, as he continues, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That means you've got to be perfect. So yeah, the law doesn't lose any of its veracity. It's true. It's not going anywhere. Every jot, tittle, every little word, every little phrase, it stays, it perseveres, it goes all the way through. All the way. It doesn't change. It doesn't change. And because of that, the law either condemns humanity or it delights humanity. That's what it does. It depends on whether you're a Christian or whether you're not. 
If you are a Christian, it should delight you because you're able to lean into the righteousness that doesn't belong to you. You see, being a Christian, it all comes down to whose righteousness you claim. If you claim the righteousness of Jesus who was perfect, right, then you are not bound to an oppressive, condemning, terminal law. But if you don't, you're relying on your own righteousness. And friends, you had better be perfect. You had better be perfect. That's what this is saying right here. Your state before God depends on whose righteousness you claim. Outside of perfection, the law condemns us as terminally ill. Outside of perfection, right? The law, like an MRI, like an x-ray, it shows how broken you are. It shows all your broken ribs. It shows all the cancer in your body. It shows you and exposes you for who you are and how far away from ideal and how far away from perfection you really are. But if you were in Christ, the law entices you and it draws you. It intoxicates you. It's something that you take joy in, in deep, deep, deep satisfaction. It delights us. This, Jesus fulfilling the demanding law on us and passing on the benefits to us, it does something inside. It makes us want, want to follow these statutes that are beautiful. You know, David would write all through the Psalms how following God's statutes were like honey to his lips. I mean, they wrote poetry in the Psalms over how beautiful God's commandments are. Why did he do that? Why were they beautiful to him? Why were they delightful for him? Because grace had visited him, and he knew that he couldn't earn anything. He knew that it was a gift that was given, something he had visited him that he did not earn, that he had no control over, and it produced a praise and a worship, and it produced a lifestyle that hungered after God's rules, his statutes, and they became not oppressive, but a delight. Not oppressive, but a delight. Look what Paul says here about it in Romans 8. Romans 8. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Think about that just right there. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. As Martin Luther would say, the law has no right to tell you it can save you. It has no right to do that. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Okay. All right. I know up until this point, it's been thick theology. I, I can appreciate you enduring with me through that. that it, this is tough stuff, okay? I understand. I'm going to try to apply it the best I can. I'm going to try to draw the line straight to you, so bear with me because we're almost done. All right, we're just about done. Tomorrow morning, my dad is going to have surgery. And then he's going to be on some medication for a while that by God's grace will remove this cancer. Okay, that's going to happen. The medicine, the medicine is the remedy. The surgery is the remedy, not the x-ray, not the MRI. The machine and the scans could only show how broken he was. They could only show how unideal he was and how far away from perfect he was. That's all they could do. But they can't heal him. All they could, I mean, how odd would that have been for the doctor to say, all right, well, we understand what's wrong with you now. We see it here, here, and here. So the first thing we need to do is schedule a time for you to go and get some more x-rays. Well, well why? Because we're hoping to really fix this thing and get in front of it. 
well, yeah, but that's just a diagnostic, right? That's just showing me how far away I am from my ideal. But yeah, but we're hoping that it works. We're hoping that just repeated x-rays is going to fix this whole thing. It'd be goofy. You'd go find another doctor if that happened to you. But that's what we do as Christians. That's what we do as Christians. When time and time and time again we go back to the old law and to regulation and our performance and our own made-up laws to be our remedy instead of Christ. That's what we do. All that can do, all your rules can do is show you how far away you are. And that's the laws of Moses, the laws of Christ. All, of it, all it does is show you how far away, how far we fall short. That's all it can do. But the remedy, friends, the remedy, the answer, the medication is all bottled up in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and the story he leaves to us. That is where it's at. The grace that he has given us. The x-rays aren't going to help you. So what do we do with the law then? And then what do we do with it? We follow it. We obey it. We follow it because it's a delight to us. We follow it because it satisfies us and it's honey to our lips. We follow it because it reminds us of God's grace to us and we understand it to be a good thing. Just like as parents, we give rules to our kids because we love them and it's a good thing. And when they follow those rules that we set up as parents, don't we want them to do it because they understand and they appreciate the love that we have? Do we really want them following our rules because they're scared they're going to get spanked or they're greedy for a cookie? We don't want that. That's why we follow it. So to the legalists today, I would say you've, you've lived a life of continuing to rely on what you do and what you do not do to access God. You've continued to depend on your performance and your behavior to get something from God. I will do, God, if you do, rather than I have done because you have already done. I want to act so that you will act, rather than I'm going to get to act right now, and I love to act because you have already acted brilliantly and passionately on my part. Do you see the difference? But living in legalism has produced a burden for you, hasn't it? As for me, it's a heavy weight. I mean, there's only so many times you can fast. There's only so much bad music to sell. There's only so many times you can behave well to cover up your misbehaving in order to erase your own sin and your own guilt. You can only do it so much. And then it just wears you out. But like Adam, what did Adam do when he sinned? He hid from God. And that's what we do. We sin, we hide from God. We hide from His gaze. We don't want Him to see us, right? And then we cover ourselves with fig leaves to cover our own shame and our own guilt and our own sin. Of course, His fig leaf becomes our performance and obedience, our fasting, our getting rid of stuff, our adding stuff, our making vows and pledges in order to receive some grace that has already been given to us. And just like God made a covering for Adam, He made a better one for us. He begotten a son for us. It became a covering for our sin and for our shame, our shame, I mean, he covered our shame, and he covers our guilt. So we ought not continue to treat the MRI of the law as our remedy. Behavior will not fix you. Performance does not save you. Just like an x-ray cannot be your cure. I think what God would have us do as legalists, 
what get us to obey, but because we love it. Because it's honey to our lips. It's, obeying God is something that we, if we wrote poetry, which I don't, I'm in the not poetry club, but if we did write poetry, it would be something we'd be happy to do. Write songs about it because I love following the statutes of God. There's, there's nowhere else I'd rather be. I think that's where God would rather have us. And friends, listen, as legalists, whenever you look at other sinners, whenever you see other sinners, and I mean the dirty ones, the ones you think are dirty, the child molesters, those who are gay, whenever you see them and you judge them in your eyes, you ought to be rejoicing. Rejoice because you were worse when God found you. You're not not better than that person. Listen, you're not better than that child molester or the murderer. You're not better than the homosexual. You are that person. Outside of God's grace visiting you, you are as bad and worse than you could ever imagine. Rejoice. I mean, God is so big. He, he chose who he was going to give favor to. and who he, That was all his brilliance, who he would visit with his love, his unconditional love. And he chose you, Christian. He chose you. So rejoice. Don't judge. Because outside of God's kindness, outside of your merit, you are that person. You are that person. So accept that God's in control and rejoice that he has given you favor. And then I would say obey Obey God's sweet laws. Obey His good statutes before us. Obey what Jesus says. Follow through with it. But do it as a delight and a joy. And if it doesn't turn out to be a joy for you, you need to revisit the gospel. You're missing something big. If you're like, well, I could do it, but I don't know that it'll ever be a, a delight to me. I don't think it'll ever be a joy to me. Then there's something you're not getting your arms around. Maybe you think you deserve it. Maybe you think you had something to do with it. Maybe his grace isn't good enough for you. Maybe his security isn't secure enough for you. I don't know what it would be, but you need to revisit and recomprehend the gospel, begging God to give you a better understanding of what it is. And for those of us who are licentious, and we live lawlessly, and I'm in this club too, you know enough, and you understand enough to know that God's grace is free for you. You get that. And you get, you understand the fact that if you didn't earn it, you can't lose it. You get that too. But you sin, and you sin, and you actually enjoy it, and you develop the lifestyle for it, and I will tell you, you understand nothing. You get nothing. You don't understand. And with the fear of God on me, I appeal to you that if you're living a comfortable, unrepentant lifestyle, you are very far from God's grace. If you are comfortable and have no problem with your sin in the face of a holy God, you you might be in a very poor place. Don't don't confuse understanding what grace is with having it in you. Don't, Don't confuse those two. Don't be so sure if you're living a lawless life. You need to work that out. You need to look at it. I mean, think about it. If you're able to sin with no regard to His holiness, if you're able to live a life of unrepentant sin, then you are most likely just still a dead man walking. Cancer, broken bones, convinced that you're healthy. That's not a safe place to be because God doesn't ignore sin and not anywhere does He excuse it. Understanding grace, understanding and getting salvation is not the same as having it take effect in your life because you've got to have faith and trust in it. You have to depend on grace as being a gift and not something that you work for. 
There's a difference between just hearing it and being it. And I think we've grown up in a culture where we've heard it so many times and mentally we just agree with it. I agree. I agree. Jesus is good. He died on the cross. I'm in, baby. But we live a lawless life. Don't be so sure, friend. Do not be so sure. I would appeal to you to stop sinning. I would appeal to you to stop trampling on what Jesus Christ bled out for all in the name of a word that you don't even understand as grace. Boy, it's important you hear me. It's important that you hear that. I'm talking to the legalist when I say performance doesn't save you, but I'm talking to the licentious when I say sinning is not a perk you get. (laughs) It's not. The word for us is to obey. But to obey from a stature of one who has had grace visited, we never merited. We didn't work for. We didn't bench press enough to get that. It just came because he loved you and nothing more. Please get that. Please get it. I tell you what, go ahead and stand up with me. I'm going to pray for you. I tried not to go long today. That text is hard. So thank you for bearing with me on that. But I'd like to pray for you. Um, And just as you know, as they come up and as they lead and music's going and it's pumping and it's loud and people are worshiping, we have communion at the back, all right? And as we just talked about, that is both symbolic of what Jesus has done for us as part of God's plan, and it's also an arrow pointing forward to a better banquet where we can take another communion with our king, all right? That's what that's there for. But also in this time, we'll have people back there, all right? We'll have Kevin, we'll have Rebecca, we'll have Wes, we'll have Chase, we'll have people back there that will talk to you if you need something untied. Listen, I scared some of you just then, didn't I? There's some of you that I frightened when I said, don't be sure. And I'm not going to balance that. You might need to talk to somebody today. It's okay. It's all right. You might need to talk to somebody. We'll have people in the back that will help you work through that. All right? This would be a good day to do it. It would be a good day to respond to God's grace to you. That's all we're asking. Okay? You don't have to have all the answers. You don't even have to know what, what the question is supposed to sound like. Just go back and start working it out. For the rest of you, find where it is that you're being legalistic as we worship. God, where am I trying to earn something? Where do I want control? Where is it that, what is it I just don't believe about you? And then some of you are living an unrepentant lifestyle where there's just something you are just not willing to give up. You're just not willing to give up. This would be a great time to respond.